Podstarter. Every podcast starts somewhere. So, Reese, this is uh, part two of a conversation with uh, Scott. What? Uh, why did it keep going? <laughs> Scott, it. I mean, the podcasts can be up to like six hours long. They. He loves. He loves conversation. <laughs> he, I, he, 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 he's perfect for podcasting because he loves to talk, but he's very down to earth, very authentic in how he talks. And he always has a lot of anecdotes. Uh, he's a great storyteller. Um, and that's kind of seeped through into, into what makes the show a hit. So I think it made sense to break this into two, um, to edit down his conversation to one, there was going to be a lot of good content that we would have to take out. So the second part of the conversation really focuses on the, 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 the commitment and the work ethic required to keep delivering to a schedule that they they decided on right at the start and then when the momentum built up became uh, a lot tougher for them so there's, there's some really good lessons on uh, why you need to really think hard about the kind of workload you can you could introduce to your life um, and and the potential price you can pay when you've got to show an, an audience that um, that demands your content and loves your content but you don't want to let them down well, there's there's a silly irony in the fact that we're doing this as a as a two part episode as well. Uh, one of the things that he talks about is is that the story doesn't always fit in a, a thirty second or a thirty minute or a forty five minute uh, structure. The story is as long as the story takes, and his his fans and his audience are are fine and comfortable with that. In fact, they want the in depth uh, work behind the unveiling of that story. So he, he he does things very deep. So the fact that we're actually taking two parts for us to be able to complete the story of Scott uh, and his podcast kind of has a, 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 a sort of a, a quirky irony to it. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of paying tribute to their format in a way. <laughs> so we're kind of, you know, we're, we're, we've kind of been infected by the uh, the tone and, and how they do the show. And so we're looking forward to having your continued conversation with Scott. Yeah. And hopefully there won't be a part three. Um, we'll just try and keep it to two parts. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's kick it off. Podstarter. Every podcast starts somewhere. Did you did you have any idea when you started out what your audience looked like? No, we just felt like we knew they were out there. Um, we knew that people were out there that liked the things we liked. And we felt like our, th- our thing has always been, and I'm not saying this in a, I'm not trying to be conceited or whatever it was our thing has always been if you have a general interest in our topics if you give us a try we feel like eight out of ten people are going to be intrigued enough to listen to more than one episode i can't say they'll stay with us forever everybody gets bored with things even your favorite shows but um we always felt like if we could just get people to find out about us they would stick with us and uh there's no question that some of our growth has just been the growth of podcasting in general so whereas if podcasting had peaked in terms of adoption by listeners, we, you know, we might be flatlined. I don't know. We could just be growing because more people are finding out about podcasts and then we're sort of in that mix somewhere. But iTunes just released a whole bunch of new categories. They still don't have one for us. We're still under, I don't know. <laughs> Uncategorized. Personal. Yeah. It's, there's no paranormal or entertainment, you know, and I, paranormal for me was a bad word when we started because I felt like that word had a bad brand to it. That's sort of hokey and, melodramatic and stagey and I didn't want to be that and but now but the further we've gone into it and the more frankly paranormal podcasters I've gotten to know and the more I I do want to own that word and I feel good about saying that we are or can be a paranormal show we also do historical mysteries that don't necessarily have paranormal explanations but the bulk of our stuff probably falls into that category 
Uh, but again, there is no category for it in iTunes, but the, you know, other pod, uh, pod catchers have, have room for it. But I, I guess, um, in terms of the audience, we just thought people were out there that would like it and they turned out to be, and, and we didn't take a look at any demographics or anything until pretty late in the game when an advertiser or somebody asked us to do that. And we did a survey to get 300 respondents and, um, because they wanted to use that uh, for advertisers. And when the people that responded, I was really surprised to see it was pretty well rounded out. It was all different ages and demographics and and, uh, and um, sexes and just all kinds of people from all different walks of life. And I, I was glad for that uh, because I didn't know if we were just what the what I'm the emotional equivalent of, which is a nerdy teenager sitting in my mom's basement. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> that's I mean that's what I am. I'm saying that I am that. I'm not putting those people down. So I'm older than that now, but that's still where I'm stuck, and that's you know that's why our show is what it is. I guess perhaps everybody else is the same deep down as well. <laughs> yeah, right. That's and that's where I think our listeners are coming yeah, from. Yeah. <laughs> and- and at what point then did you, what was the tipping point for you where you realized that Astonishing Legends was, um, you, you mentioned that you've had many failed ventures in the past. At what point yeah. did you realize that this one was one that was had, had legs and was going to go somewhere, I suppose? I think when we started selling ads regularly and the show kept growing and then our revenue got to a point where, where we could see on the horizon that we would be able to support ourselves with it and have it be our day jobs and be something we could keep doing. That was when I did that, you know, I sat down like they probably did in, in the, in Houston when the, when the thing actually touched down on the moon, you know, when the, <laughs> I, cause I was just like, wow, we, this happened and it's, it seems to be working, you know, but I still much like those guys, you, you worry about getting them home. And I, I do wonder you know, what misstep we could make or what's going to, are we going to get stale or is our, is the interest in the kinds of things we talk about, is that a fad? You know, you don't know what, but our philosophy, both Forrest and I, I think our philosophy really is just to kind of make the best show we can every week. And that's what we focus on to the exclusion of everything else. And we've missed some opportunities because of it, because we've been so busy producing shows. We, we haven't been able to take advantage of things that have come along for us um, or for the show itself, because we couldn't even take a phone call because we have to produce the next episode. But that is the thing that we always put first. And we attribute our longevity to focusing on that, making the next show and making that the number one priority. And I think that that's the only reason we're still around, really. And has much changed about how you do things? You know, how, how have you progressed in terms of your process? You you touched like on the, the release schedule has changed quite a lot. Yes. How about how you kind of maybe come up with ideas for shows or how you put them together, how you package the, the information, the, I suppose? A lot of stuff has changed a lot. You just can't help but evolve, uh, especially organizationally. You get tired of scrambling and, you know, you... you there's the point at which you can't have the messy desk, and I'm saying figuratively, with stacks of papers on it. You just can't survive that way forever. So you get to a point where you start organizing your guess, your desk, and then you get a file cabinet, and you start labeling folders, and you start doing stuff like that. And we've done a lot of that, a lot of workflow development. We use Google Docs a lot. Now Dropbox Paper, which is pretty awesome, that just came along. We're using all these things to share documents because everybody's remote, really. I mean, Forrest and I 
have been in the same city for years, but that's not continuing uh, pretty soon. But that has no bearing on our show. We've actually recorded a part before and nobody knew. So that's fine. And then our editor, is uh, she's in Tennessee. Our sound designer's in Tennessee. Um, our head of research and producer, uh, co-producer of the show is in Washington, D.C. So we have to be able to Everyone has to be able to work remotely and fluidly, so we came up with things. We have a document for each show that has an outline form. We have a strategy, of an, an approach strategy to how we go to the topic, um, and then how we work from the outline as we're recording. Uh, both Forrest and I can write outlines, but it, it changes depending on who's doing what, and um, all of those things. I think the biggest thing that we did for 2019 was I sat down for like three days. I went to Staples and I got a calendar, like a laminated calendar, which I don't know what the deal is with Staples, but it was absurdly overpriced because it was a piece of paper <laughs> in a laminate, but and it was still like $30. I, I don't get that place, but anyway, but I had to have it, so I got it. So I guess that's why Staples works. So I'm, I've got this thing and I, I brought this calendar home and I sat down and I used dry erase pens and I wrote out where... I thought each show needed to be released. And then I wrote in when we needed to be starting research on that particular show, not topics, the topics we we kind of decide pretty quickly. And I'll explain that in a second. But more like we should be researching show X here. We should be recording show Y here. And I started like multitasking the calendar to where each day we had a clear idea of what we needed to do that day. And then we started, the other thing I did was figure out how we could work through what we call our dark weeks instead of taking them off, which is what we had been doing. We were hand to mouth. We would do a show, finish it, produce the next show, post it. Then there'd be a dark week and we'd do our laundry and try not to get evicted. Then we'd go back. <laughs> and I, I sat down at the end of last year and said, we, if we do this and we work our butts off through the dark weeks... You know, the, the first three weeks will be hard as they always are, hand to mouth, but then that fourth week is a dark week. If we produce a show, then we'll be a week ahead. And then if we do that with every dark week, by the middle of the year, we'll be five, six, eight weeks ahead, which is a, something that never happened, and we actually pulled that off this year. So That's amazing. Um, that's been a game-changing thing, and that was really just about working smarter, not harder. You, I mean, it's a cliche, but... For me, the, the, the thing that is your production experience, the whole workflow, planning productions and, you know, planning delivery of a of an end piece yeah. of work, creative work, uh, obviously that that, that, that kind of uh, it has really informed that process. And I guess yeah. the people who come into podcasting aren't familiar with if they don't have a, a, a background in production. So that sounds like it was really useful in helping you hammer that out. Yeah, that was that's a really good point. And you and I are, are from, come from the same background. So and I don't think I would have thought I, I kind of take that for granted, because I did that so long, I don't think about it. But it did teach me because I, I started out delivering tapes, a job that doesn't exist anymore for the company that I started for, and then became a vault manager, which meant I was in charge of all the tapes and the film that came into the company I was at. And then I became an assistant editor, and then an editor, blah, 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 blah. But like working my way up that whole process. Yes, you realize that the the thing that needs to be produced that's the priority, and how is it treated? It's the king of the of the roost. You got to take care of it and make sure it gets delivered on time, no matter what. And if there's a problem, then you got to fix it. And um, or as Vanilla Ice would say, "Yo, I'll solve it." So it, you've got to get there, no matter <laughs> what. And that is something that I learned from that. And and you're right. If you haven't been in that kind of backbreaking world of 
no matter what happens, this has to come out. It has to be as it has to be perfect or better than perfect, and it has to come out by a certain time. That's something that I did for fifteen years with commercials or more. And you're right; that did definitely that definitely helps me organize our show. And um, and it's the same thing with Forrest. He had similar experience to me and the similar pressures uh, in post production as well. He worked in movie trailers, which are even harder than commercials and. Um, and also worked producing corporate events, which is another kind of cutthroat world. And so we both were under deadlines all the time, and uh, but they were always for other people. So the nice thing is now that we're under deadlines for ourselves, even though, you know, I, I heard a quote a long time ago about, because I, I consider us entrepreneurs, and I heard a quote a long time ago, a long time ago where someone said an entrepreneur is someone that will work 60 hours a week for themselves to avoid working 40 hours a week for someone else. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's the truth. And I think a lot of people, you know, everyone talks about pod fade because a lot of people start shows and then they don't, they can't keep it up. And the thing to understand about it is that it's a real job and it's real hard and it's not some easy way to make money. It's it. And, and on top of that, it could be that you'll do it and no one will listen to you. And you might have a great show and they still won't listen to you. They won't find you. So <laughs> that's just, you know, it's it's frustrating. And I don't and honestly I, know how we got where we are, to be honest, in the big picture of that. Because you and Forrest are kind of the holy grail. It's now your full-time job. And that's what a yeah. lot of people dream of when they first start as podcasters. It's like, hey, wow, imagine if this was our full-time job. Yeah. L- and like you say, it, it is not, it's, not, it's not a necessarily an easy thing to, to do. No, it's not. And I think um, we, we both recognize the value of that. And it has been in a lot of ways a dream come true. But we've also worked as hard at it, I think, or harder than either one of us has ever worked prior in any other mm. job we've had. And um, it's and, and we treat it with kid gloves. And, and we do listen to the negative emails. We do, or, you know, we do try to take thoughts away from them, even when they're really hateful. And there's not a lot of those, to be honest. I mean, considering the size of our show, we have a very, very low number of trolls. Uh, but we do have some people that respectfully write in and say, Hey, I wish you would do X, Y, or Z. And I'll look at that and I'll be like 80% of what you said, you should just find another show. But this 20%, <laughs> uh, you're right. We should fix that. And so I, we always try to look at that kind of stuff. I think, um, it's, uh, it's, there's a, I I think there's a lot of folks, I think, God, there was just an article, I think it was the New York Times or the Washington Post with some girl who had started a podcast and she went like six weeks and gave up because nobody was listening. And it's like, yeah, that's, you, what are you, what's it on? Is it interesting? Is it different? You know, what's, what's your angle and what are you bringing to the table? And that's the thing everybody needs to think about before they even start. And yeah, can you just go in your garage and make one and have a billion people to listen to it? Yeah, if you're Eddie Murphy or, you know, Sarah Silverman or, you know, somebody who's just g- can talk and talk and be interesting all the time. I just listed comedians there, but there's lots of people in that category. Um, that, yeah, you can pull that off, but you have to remember that uh, Sarah and Eddie are one in a million. And you're, the, the odds of you being that person, if you are, your family's already told you. You know that. All right, well. You can't trust your family. They're telling you that anyway. But you should <laughs> your friends will say, "Hey, you should do this or whatever." You know, there's 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 people who tell you you have a gift. You should record. You should do a podcast. You should do a course. So you have to you have to get out there, but you have to do something different than what other people are doing. And what would you say is your biggest achievement on the show? And that might not necessarily be something that is you know about downloads or or 
you know, the financial income something that was like a personal triumph for you? Is, is there a moment or um, uh, an aspect that you're really particularly proud of? Um, I think for me, it was a recent series that we did, and it was the relationship that um, that we developed with one of our guests on the show and the topic and the way that it all unfolded. Uh, we did a series on this uh, unusual object. It doesn't even fall into a category. It's not a UFO. It's not a cryptid. It's not a ghost. It's a weird metal ball, and, and the series is called The Bet Sphere, <laughs> and it's another one of those long multi-part series, and um, I, you know, it's hard to sum up sh- briefly as clearly I couldn't because we have, I don't know, 12 or 15 hours on it, but the, the, the long and short of it is in the late seventies, this family found a metal ball in a field on a piece of their land and they brought it home and you think, Oh, big deal. It's been, it's about the size of a bowling ball. And it appeared to be sentient and it did all these things where it seemed to know like how to not fall off a table. If you pushed it away from you, it would come back all, all this kind of stuff. And this was, this story was super sensational. It was international news, but it came and went super, super quickly. So a lot of people hadn't even heard of it. It was like a blip on the radar of the the cultural zeitgeist of the world and of UFOs and that sort of thing, which was, you know, what people thought it must be related to, but it never flew. No one ever saw it fly. So you can't call it a UFO. It's really just a UO, (laughs) an unidentified (laughs) object. But whatever it was, um, it was an intriguing story. And it was something that Forrest had to bring to my attention because I hadn't heard of it. Um, and he brought it up a year or so before we did it. And I remember looking into it and being like, wow, this is really strange. But I was like, is there more to it? And then once we dug into it, um, uh, one of uh, the people, we have a group of volunteer researchers called the Astonishing Research Corps. And they're truly amazing folks that are just from all walks of life, different professions. Um, so, you know, one of them works in the Library of Congress. He's, and, and these people just volunteer and they help us uh, find information when we're doing research on a show. And one of them managed to track down a member of the family that found this ball, or it seemed like it. And it was a hard person to find because they had changed their name, they were living in a different state, and we couldn't even really be sure if it was the person. But we found out where they were, and I got contact information, and I reached out to her. And she, the email that I wrote was very, I tried to be very, cautious and respectful. And that's the thing that we always do too. Especially when you're talking to people about something weird, a lot of times they've been beat up in the press and in the public and they're reluctant to do it again. Um, We've had a few guests who didn't come on the show because how they were treated on other shows and they felt like they were afraid they were going to be made fun of. And we try to never do that. And we've established a reputation, I think, of not being that person, not being that show. You're not going to get ambushed. We're not going to make fun of you. And that's one thing that I'm really proud of is that you can, if, if I reach out to somebody and say, um, will you come on the show? I can say, go back through our catalog, listen to any show you want, and you'll see how we treat guests. And I don't have to worry about it. And um, when this person, uh, when I emailed her, I said, look, if you are who I think you are, we would love to have you on the show. And if you're not, uh, sorry, we bothered you. And, uh, and and if you also, if you are who we think you are, but you don't want to talk about it, you'll never hear from us again. We're not going to tell anyone where you are. We're not going to say that we found you. We just won't even mention you during the episodes. And however, and it took me a couple hours to write that email. It was only one paragraph, but I was like, how can yeah. I, you know, I don't know who this person is, it's a stranger. And um, she really responded to it and wound up not only becoming, uh, coming on the show and allowing to be interviewed, but we became really great friends. And uh, to the point where, 
I just took a cross-country road trip, and uh, my son and I stayed with her and her family at their house, and it was amazing. And yeah, and we, we talk, we're talking weekly, and that is something that feels really good to me because she's a cool person, and then she's also connected to this really amazing story, and then as a result of that um, authentic uh, friendship that we developed and over the course of the interviews and everything, she gave us all kinds of really amazing information that no one knew about that story and that ball, including an x-ray that the military took, all kinds of information that people didn't have about how dicey things got for her family during the course of the, of, uh, their time with this story. And, um, all of that stuff really unfolded into a, a revelatory, um, topic. And I, I guess for, you know, pride goeth before a fall, but I, I was proud of how that series came out, and I'm thrilled that I got that relationship out of it. I wish that I could uh, take a friend away from every show we did, you know? It's fun yeah, to yeah, be yeah. able to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing, I suppose, as well, is from my experience covering similar topics, the, you know, to win people over like that feels like yeah. a real achievement because their first instinct is you're here to make fun of me or you're here to sensationalize what I saw. So yeah, I can understand why that progression must have been so, um, so rewarding and kind of, yeah, to then. Yeah. And, and, and you, you see these stories in books and a lot of the time people cover them without going further than Wikipedia or a book, but to go to that extra level and really, you know, lift the lid on a mystery to that extent is like you say in the podcasters who solve crimes, you kind of, it's kind of batting at that level in a sense where you, you're, you're kind of going the extra mile and actually becoming part of the story because you're, 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 you're finding new things out that people haven't before. Well, and that's another thing. You know, a lot of folks have gotten into true crime and there's some really amazing true crime podcasts out there. That's an exploding, you know, division of it. Um, I couldn't do it because I get too involved in these stories. And I like to get to know the people in these stories. Um, you know, it's the same thing with, uh, we did a series on the Sally house and one haunted house in Kansas. And, um, that whole thing took a right turn. But initially in the first part of it, we were interviewing a couple that lived in it in the nineties that experienced a lot of really weird stuff. And I count them as friends now and talking to them was really fascinating. And, um, it's, it's like this, it's a whole nother component to a story that is, has elements of, uh, elements that you can't believe in or unbelievable aspects when you get to be uh, friends with the people who experienced it and you get to really connect with whether or not they're fabricating things or they seem to be interested in fame or money because you get to know them well enough where you would know that, Uh, especially after you've talked to them for hours on end. And it's the same thing like, I mean, you've been so amazing. You you helped connect us with a lot of uh, Welsh folks in uh, relation to the the uh, Berwyn Mountain incident and that sort of stuff. And those people were just amazing. And when the more you talk to them and the more you get involved, the more you're like, these people aren't making this up, which is what, when you see something just in print and people read it, and they have an air of disbelief anyway about whatever it's about, the first thing everyone thinks is, oh, these guys were mistaken. They're making it up. But then when you start talking to them for a little bit, you suddenly realize that a lot more of these stories feel a lot more true than what you're probably comfortable thinking. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and um, do you think that that's kind of like the secret behind your show is that you're kind of you're kind of probing um, and and asking questions that people maybe are sometimes afraid to ask, but in a yeah. way that is not you're not kind of you're not so out there. It's kind of very you, you know you're very grounded in a sense. You don't necessarily just jump and believe and and 
make up unsubstantiated claims and, and try and, you know, the whole confirmation bias thing is you use the phrase confirmation bias quite yes. a lot. It's something you're very conscious of and something we a lot try of people... to be. It's hard to yeah. fight. You get it no matter what, but especially I, with, I mean, you know, we clearly fall in the I want to believe category, but we try yeah, to be yeah. impartial. <laughs> but he, just the level of research and commitment you have to put in the episodes together and, and um, I suppose, did you feel like that thoroughness is, is, is a real selling point? Yeah, I do. I think it uh, surprisingly has been, you know, I I was worried it was detrimental. We're going too deep. We're going too long. We're you know, but we, and and like I said, some people complain about that, but more people, especially in our our social media, when we say, "Hey, should we make the show shorter?" We've done that a few times. Yeah, the overwhelming majority on those surveys or the Twitter survey, and of course, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt because anyone who's following us on social media is probably already a fan. But excuse me. You have to take those with a grain of salt because anyone who's following us on social media is probably already a fan. Yeah. But there's, you know, it's a good 70 or 80 percent or don't change a thing. Don't make it shorter. Produce more episodes. Make them longer. And so and that's encouraging. And it must be it must mean that the way that we're doing it is appealing to people, you know. Yeah. But I always wonder, I guess, in terms of growth and here, here's the bottom line is we're we're you know, we're at a point where like it can be our full-time jobs. That was the point that was most important to both of us so that we can keep doing it. And it, if it grows more, that's great. But as long as it doesn't go down from where we're at, we get to keep doing it. So <laughs> I do wonder, you know, oh, we like, you know, we should we, and Force and I talk about this all the time, what do we need to do to make it more accessible? Oh, we should make it shorter. No show should be longer than 75 minutes. Or we should stop talking about, um, this type of historical connection or whatever. And, it, but whenever we get into the weeds on the research and it's like, we can't leave this out. This is amazing. The hellfire club was right up the street and these guys were related and, but you know, that kind of stuff. So it's like, we can't not tell people that. So there's that component of it. Um, but you know, and we're, we're, we're looking at emerging platforms and ways to develop, uh, you know, I think podcasts are going to evolve to where you can have more choices about how you listen mm. to them. And that's something that we're constantly, we're working on now and developing, uh, in a way that will give people, um, alternative ways to listen to us that will allow the people that want the shorter version to hear that one and the other ones to take the left turns when they want to. So that's something that we're trying to figure out, which I think, um, maybe that'll get us the hockey stick. <laughs> in terms of growth Maybe. who knows <laughs> and uh just just as kind of one final point what yes. what what one piece what kind of one piece of advice or maybe there's more than one piece of advice what would you say to somebody who's just starting um or just thinking of starting um what what, what needs to be at the front of their mind when they when they're going to take that leap and, and start recording well, I would say there's a couple of things. I, I guess the well, you said one piece of advice. Let's see if I can. Well, you, can you can give me. You can give me a few more. If you want. <laughs> I guess what I would say. As yeah, long as he's I gold. Mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I would say that um, the the main thing to do first is to figure out if any other show out there is doing what you're planning on doing. So once you identify that, then you have to decide if you can do it better than the best show in that category or different in a way that will still draw a large audience, even though the best show's already out there in that category. And then I would say, you know, apply yourself to what differentiates you because the, there's so many shows out there. And one of the things that stinks about iTunes directory is that 
these shows that go out and they do like six episodes and they quit and they're all still out there on the directory. So there's like a million or 700,000, I don't know, six, 700,000 podcasts out there. 20% of them have produced a new show in the past three months, 20%. So, and that stinks <laughs> for podcasters yeah. because you, people are going on there and they have to, they have to wade through a bunch of carcasses, podcast carcasses to find something that's even still active. So, um, you, but and what that means to you as someone starting out is that you've got to be real different and you've got to be accessible in terms of the name of your show so that people can just look at because all your that first impression is just going to be your postage stamp sized logo and the name of your show and so you have to be pick something that works and that people will understand and, and can understand what the show's about, unless you're a celebrity and you can, like I was, you know, whoever I'm picking, Sarah Silverman, and you can just say, it's Sarah, then you get to do that if you're Sarah Silverman. If you're not Sarah Silverman, your name of your show has to say something more and you don't have, you know, a corporate entity behind you or whatever. So the, um, I would say that's one thing. I would say if you're going to have a show with co-hosts like, um, like ours, you got to be real careful about who you pick because in Force and I, frankly, we just got lucky. Who would know that we could spend hours upon hours in a room staring at each other? And man, we've been through some, I mean, broken air conditioning systems, broken hardware, yelling at each other at three in the morning <laughs> and forgetting what we even were talking about. Just, you know, and it takes us, it takes a certain disposition, um, and you have to mesh with the other person if you're going to have a co-host. And if you're going to be on your own, then be in the driver's seat and be good at that and be good at interviewing or eliciting interesting conversations from other people. Uh, get the best gear you can afford to get. But if you can't get nice gear initially, then still you can get started. And then if you start to generate some income from whatever way, then later you can step your gear up, which I also believe you should do is reinvest in the show if it starts to do well. And... Um, just make sure that, like I said, that you're different from what other people are doing. Because if you're not, you're going to have a super hard time standing out. And um, and then I guess the other thing is just to get out there and, and, and do it and don't spend too long. It's like anything, ruminating about it, even though we spent a year and a half doing that ourselves. <laughs> don't wait for a porch <laughs> moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Oh, cool. Well, thank thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate um, you sharing the story from from uh, Astonishing Legends. Um, it's been really interesting and really useful to get some kind of yeah, really in depth experiences and and um, lessons that you've learned from from building your show. Well, it's you know it's fun to be able to share what we've learned because um, outside of you know other podcasters nobody gives a crap what we've learned <laughs> so it's nice to get asked <laughs> there's quite a lot of people who want to learn so that that makes sense this way yeah yeah so it's um it's been yeah and oh what well, the other thing i was going to say about like having a co-host that you mesh with and in a sense you know forrest and i just got lucky we our egos go together we're not neither one of us is struggling for the spotlight or trying to push the other one down. We're just both kind of like, well, whatever it takes, the show comes first. And that's the thing. If you're working with other people, they, everyone has to, I think, put the show itself first in front of, you know, in front of the people that are doing the show. There are a few shows with multiple hosts where, you know, eventually they go off. They, you know, it's like a band. They break up. People get tired of doing it. Someone gets tired, but the other one doesn't. So there's a lot that goes into all that, but, oh, and, and the other thing I would say is, is make your shows predictable 
in terms of their structure, you know, and I'm not saying you have to be fully formulaic, but uh, it, people like to know what to expect, what's going to happen here, what's going to happen there. You know, it's, it's just like a late night talk show. It starts with the monologue or whatever, you know, and you can reinvent that a little bit, but it's, it's been working. It's worked for 50 years or whatever for Johnny Carson and then Leno and then whoever else and Conan O'Brien and Jimmy Kimmel and they're all doing the same thing. And there's a reason for that. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just you, you know, you just get to paint your wheel different colors. That's all. It's kind of like formatting TV and genres, you know, it's, it's the same kind of thing is making it, making it identifiable and making it recognizable for, for potential audiences. But yes. yeah, you, you can always put your own twist and own stamp on those things. Right. It just, exactly. it just, it just enables you to, to reach them e more easily. Yes, exactly. Great. Okay. Well, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Reese. It was a pleasure coming on. I really, uh, thanks for the invitation. And, uh, Forrest had wanted to know if he should hop on tonight. And, and, uh, I told him, uh, no, you don't know. I got this covered. And of course, <laughs> but the, here's the other thing. He couldn't get over to our recording studio. So, um, oh, no. but I, I feel sure if you were to ask him too, he might come on if, if people want to hear two people droning on and on about their show that drones on and on. So <laughs> I'll, I'll interview him separately and see if yeah. he's got a different perspective. So. Yeah. See if he tells a different story from me. He's like, God, I hate that guy. He doesn't yeah, know yeah. it, but I'm, I've already started my own show. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Thanks so much. All right, talk to you later. Visit podstarter.io to find out how we can help you build the podcast you and your audience needs. To listen to more episodes, search Podstarter wherever you find your podcasts or visit our website. You can also find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Podstarter is produced in Nova Scotia, Canada by podstarter.io.